This is the Bureau of Lost Culture. Stephen Coates, and here at the Bureau of Lost Culture, we're dedicated to collecting and recollecting half-remembered, half-forgotten countercultural stories, oral testimonies, tales from the underground and beyond, and celebrating rare audio and those who have made it. And I think we have all of the above in this episode. If you want to check out all that we do and support us in our endeavours, go to bureauoflostculture.com. What you heard at the top was the song of a lavender seller, a traditional cry. It was sung by Robert Penfold of 148 Culvert Road, Battersea, London, SW11. London is a mercantile city and the cries of street traders were long considered emblematic of its spirit. They were mentioned in the works of many authors including Ben Johnson, Thomas Brown, Jonathan Swift and Charles Dickens. Street selling was in decline by the early 20th century and when something's about to vanish, belated appreciation for it often blossoms all of a sudden in the halls of high culture. The street cries which were most successful in gaining such approval were those of violet sellers and lavender sellers. And that recording was from the BBC archive, dated the 2nd of November, 1938. It was digitized and collected, and the words that I read were by Ian Rawls as part of his epic London sound survey. The song of the lavender seller was one of Ian's favorite recordings. Ian died last year, and this episode of the Bureau is, in his honour, a kind of commemoration or celebration of him and his work. And I'm joined to celebrate Ian and his work by his friend, advocate and sometimes tenant, Tony Harrington, the writer and publisher of The Wire magazine. We're going to talk about Ian, about the London Sound Survey, about soundtracking the city, the cultural underground and Tony's own work at The Wire. So here we go. Welcome, Tony. Hello, Stephen. Thank you for having me on the show. For anybody who doesn't know you, and if anybody doesn't know The Wire, give us a quick bio. Uh, the Wire is an independent music magazine. Formed in 1982, it started out mostly covering like avant-garde jazz, improvised music, uh, experimental music. Over the years, it's kind of expanded that remit to cover underground music, adventurous music of all types, the monthly 
print magazine with all the usual add-ons, websites. And I'm the publisher now. I've been various things. I was a contributor, deputy editor, editor, editor-in-chief, and then I demoted myself to publisher. So that's what I do now. Poacher turned gamekeeper, as we say. Kind of. So yeah, so I've been around at the Wire for 30 odd years. Yeah, well, first of all, congratulations on the anniversary. You know, I was just going to read a little bit from what it says on the site about it, because it's, yeah. it's what you just said and more, but I love this. The Wire celebrates and interrogates the most visionary and inspiring, subversive and radical, marginalised and undervalued musicians on the planet, past and present. Uh, and it goes on, passionate, intelligent and provocative, wages war on the mundane and the mediocre. This show, the Bureau of Lost Culture, is, is, is largely dedicated to countercultural stories. Uh, and of course, one of the things that comes up quite often is the independent press. You know, we always talk about IT and Oz and Friends and all that sort of stuff. Uh, and when I was reading that about The Wire, I suddenly thought, wow, actually, The Wire is the countercultural press in a way, isn't it? Well, it kind of, I guess it grew out of that initially. So in the, late, in the UK in the late 70s, early 80s, there was a kind of countercultural press underneath or subterranean to the kind of national music press everyone knows about, like the NME, Melody Maker, Sounds and all that. Um, there was these other magazines like called things like Musics and Impetus and Collusion. And these were underground press, small press, kind of not quite fanzines but not quite your standard kind of newsstand magazine but they were covering all the stuff that maybe the weeklies never did and the wire very much kind of grew out of that kind of ferment in mm. london in the late 70s and what's important i mean i must i imagine gives you some degree of satisfaction is is that a lot of those big music papers enemy Melody Maker, who've been around Melody Maker for a very long time. I mean, they're kind of gone. I mean, they sort of exist in some ghostly form, don't they? But I mean, in terms of of print, they've gone, whereas The Wire is flourishing, right? Yeah, they've all gone by the wayside, usually because of the lack of faith in the companies that publish them, you know. Mm. If things start to get tight, it's always the knee-jerk response to go to the lowest common denominator rather than look at what you've got and try and, you know, kind of push you know, what makes you unique and special compared to all the other stuff out there. Um, yeah, but obviously online, the onslaught of online mm. culture has kind of decimated the print industry, if you like. Um, but there's still huge amounts of print out there. you just got to walk into any shop. There's so many small press type journals and all kinds of stuff going on now still. Um, it's just, it's not as influential as it maybe once was, but it's still a huge amount of activity bubbling under. Is there a counterculture still? Is it, is it there in those small publications when it comes to press? I mean, what does it mean to you now? You're probably better placed than most to know whether there's countercultural music going on. I mean, it's come up several times here that in some ways there's, it's probably out there, out of sight, you know, flourishing or even or just starting to come out of the ground somewhere. You know, I always say this maybe in South London off with a tower block or something or, you know, it's it, we don't notice it somehow, do we, until it's already above ground once upon a time if you wanted to hear stuff that was not you know kind of mainstream radio one playlist stuff you would have to really go deep and dig it out but now obviously through the internet there's so many online stations and other kind of outlets let alone all the streaming services things do have platforms now there is an infrastructure there to support and promote if you want to call it that um Music that previously you would have said was underground or experimental or avant-garde or whatever. So they, they, they do have their platforms now. Um, in a way, it makes it less heroic, you know, 
less interesting. It less it feels like less like you're you know thrashing your way through <laughs> the jungle, sort of clearing the ground or whatever. Mm. Mm. This kind of different ideas and approaches to music, not just music but everything, can kind of just be disseminated mm. and people can find a voice. Um, but the, but the clamour, the babble of those voices, I think makes it even obviously difficult to cut through very often. I'm glad you used that phrase, babble of voices. That's a perfect segue in what we're about to listen to. What we heard then was a recording called Petticoat Lane Traders. For anybody who doesn't know Petticoat Lane, it's in the east bit of London. It's a traditional London market. still is, largely, despite the sort of hipster hipsterization of uh, East London. It's still a place where you can buy spent batteries and make out-of-date copies of The Wire, I imagine, for a quid and that sort of stuff. Uh, and it was recorded by Ian Rawls. And the reason that uh, Tony's here is to talk about Ian Rawls and his amazing project countercultural project i would say london sound survey last year a friend of mine um, just happened to mention he's, that ian had died which was a big shock because he wasn't very old and tony's uh, uh, obituary of him appeared in the wire shortly afterwards and i wanted just to read a little bit from that um before we talk about him and why he mattered so ian rose launched this london sound survey in 2009 as a platform for his field recordings of London street life which he'd started making the previous year. The first was at Petticoat Lane Market in London's East End. I wanted to do something to understand this city, he said, to produce my own version of it that other people could read or respond to. Aspects of London that appeal to me most, which tended to be the more humble, down-to-earth things, such as street markets, junk shops, old man's pubs, canals, odd places and so on. A kind of worm's eye view of the city. Tony, uh, he was a friend of yours. You wrote about him. You mentioned earlier as your landlord. I think we'll come back to that in a bit in a minute. But uh, who was Ian and what is the London Sound Survey? Yeah, I guess it's like one man's quixotic life project, you know, to document as much of London in sound as he could possibly do, as he could possibly get. You know, I mean, as a website, it's a model. 
website you know um, i mean ian also had a background in kind of typography and graphic design and you can tell that by the website because it's beautifully made so it's really kind of draws you in so he was a friend of mine he was my landlord we can talk about that later he started the london sound survey as you just read out in 2008 because he'd started doing making field recordings or recordings the previous year and the one you just played petticoat lane market i think that was an excerpt from the very first one that he did I think that's the earliest recording on the site. And actually, I think that was the first time he went out of the house with um, a recording setup, you know, a microphone, uh, headphones, a recorder, etc., and walked around recording the sounds of the environments around him. Um, and I think it was just born out of this kind of an innate curi curiosity. At the time, in the early to mid-2000s, he got a job at the National Sound Archive at the British Library. Um, he was basically a storeman there, uh, cataloguing all the items that either came in or that were held in the National Sound Archive, which are basically CDs, LPs, cassettes, etc., of all types of stuff, not just commercially released material, but all kinds of other material. And so, you know, he would be cataloging this stuff, lugging it around into boxes and such. And I believe he just started taking notice of some of the things that were there. You said to me, I think, earlier that there was one particular sound or set of sounds that got Ian going in the first place. Is, is that right? Yes. Um, as I understand it, when he was working in the National Sound Archive, he started you know, taking notice of the, some of the, the, the things that he was actually cataloging and such. And one... He said that once, that basically the thing that got him interested in field recordings was um, there was a US uh, field recordist, ethnomusicologist called Stephen Felt, who made recordings all over the world, Papua New Guinea, Accra, Ghana, and so on, but also made recordings across Europe uh, of um, what he kind of called pastoral soundscapes, so rural soundscapes, uh, many of which are dominated by the sound of bells. So if you think about rural communities in Greece, Italy, Albania, etc., you know, there's, there's the sound of church bells, but there's also all, the, you know, these are farming communities. So they're farming cows, cattle, sheep, goats, etc. Very often they're kind of, you know, scattered around hills and God knows what else. And of course they all have bells. They all wear bells around their necks, you know. So um, this is a recording of all this, um, yeah, the sound of goats being herded through a village and all you can hear the sound of the bells going off and you can hear the, the shepherds shouting, you can hear dogs barking and it, you can understand how Ian might have heard that and thought, oh wow, I could, I could do that. That's, I could go out into Petticoat Lane Market where there's all these people shouting, there's dogs, there's people moving stuff about, I could record that.
on the site, the London Sound Service site, which is still up. It's over 2,000 recordings of everyday life in London, of recorded over 10 years. But I mean, it, it's, a, it's a sort of quixotic is probably the word, isn't it, in a way? Because how can you possibly record, you know, a city? You can only do these tiny little snapshots, right? But he did that, and other people have done it too. And the site also contains, you know, historical recordings. We're going to hear some of those later and some more of your choices. But why was it important? Why do you think it's important to have done that what makes it elevates it above one man's hobby one man's kind of personal interest into something which is kind of culturally significant well obviously you know in the, fir- in the first instance it was just a, something that he actually enjoyed doing you mm. know he enjoyed going out into these places wherever they were you know recording them the sound getting the sound down then building a website like a sound map so you know where you could if anyone is interested, could go and start clicking on little sort of parts of London to throw up uh, part recordings that had been made there, either by Ian or other recordists that he included on the site, because um, he was quite very generous in that way. Or, as you say, archive recordings, which he pulled together from various sources, including you know the BBC archive. Um, and then just put it there, really, without comment, you know, and just left people, left people make their own decisions or whatever, or responses to what this thing was. You know, they can, obviously, recordings without being there looking, they can, you know, they're abstracted into some other thing. So some of them become almost musical events themselves, um, divorced or divor- divorced from their kind of original content. I want to play one now, which is another one of your choices, actually, and this is, it's just called Albert Basin. That actually sounds quite musical. I mean, it sounds, I think you said to me when you sent it, it sounds like um, sort of abstract drumming or something, right? Ian did a lot of recording along the Thames and the various sub, sort of little tributaries and rivers that run off the Thames. Um, on the London Sound Survey website, there's at least a couple of sections devoted to recordings made around water. And obviously water is, a well, you know, one of the, the, the river, the Thames itself, London, built up around it. So rivers are key to the history of London, obviously, um, and many other great cities. Um, but the Albert Basin, so the Albert Basin is a kind of a part of the Thames. Was, there were some boats, and I don't know what they're called, but it's basically bits of metal hanging off the masts of boats. And as the wind or the or the the waves move, these things clatter against the masts in a way that is a rhythmical, but actually, you know, sounds to me very familiar. Mm. It sounds to me like I've sat in a room many times listening to free jazz or free music percussionists performing, and it sounds like that, mm. you know. Um, I think that's a good example of what these kind of recordings can do. They can draw your attention to sound, and you can they can make you hear it in a way that if you were just walking past, you probably mm. wouldn't. So that's another thing. It's about, you know, maybe these... Ian would never claim such high kind of uh, values for it, but I think maybe they're bringing attention to people, you know, to make them more aware of their environment, to um, engage more with the environment rather than just passing through it, to actually stop and notice the sounds and accept all the stuff that's going on around them 
and in that process maybe elevate your existence slightly maybe improve your kind of or maybe kind of put another dimension on your relationship with the environment that you're that you're moving through and not just take all this stuff for granted it makes things a little bit magical or something in a way because i think particularly in the age when we're all kind of glued to our phones and listening to stuff via the phones or whatever you know via headphones and then there is this kind of continual soundtrack going on out there, um, and particularly if you go a little bit out of the way. I wanted to read you what he says about that. By the dock gate stands a row of short aluminium flagpoles, and in windy weather the weighted halyards bang against them. The clicks and the clacks make a random koan onto the meaninglessness of which you can project whatever you like. But there's no power. Dereliction only happens in its absence, which is perhaps part of the consolation of such places. Everything round here is changing, and the flagpole will disappear, along with the wooden boardwalk nearby, and its rotten-looking planks. I mean, he was quite a good writer. Yeah, well, absolutely. Right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he always he kind of disavowed any kind of poetical or philosophical kind of notions of relating to his work, but he was, which was a bit disingenuous because he was a very he was highly very political, and he was also, as you heard just then, you know, he could philosophize about his work in ways that were really incredibly evocative. You know, and also accurate and kind of really bring you into why he was doing this kind of thing. But I think a lot of it, again, you know, he was interested in the city. So he's, he's a Londoner born and bred. And um, I think he was interested in the people who lived here. He was interested in the spaces that they occupied. He was interested in the way these things changed. You know, he wasn't completely crestfallen by all the changes that have occurred in London over the last well let's say 30 40 years or something because that's how you know that was his kind of lifespan in terms of an adult um but he, so he was interested in it as a historical thing so this is also a historical record if you mm. like you know the changing sound of london the changing face of london and is yeah this was his medium to do that some people choose photography some people write about it or historians but he was like a a historian of sound or something. Mm. Sound was his medium to talk about London, the people who live in it, and how those things have changed over time and the forces that are brought to bear upon them, whether they're economic, social, you know, the changing kind of demographic of people who live in London. So, yeah, sound was the way that he did that. And it was just his way of engaging with the city that he found really interesting, you know. Otherwise, I think he would have just become the pub bore. <laughs> sitting in the corner you know he did like to he did like the pub he was fond well, of the pub well another thing on the website there are a couple of other sections on there as you said when you were reading out he liked this the old london if you want to put it that way and he did you know there are kind of eulogies to greasy spoon cafes on the london sound survey website there's no sounds but there's photographs and he, he describes all the different greasy spoons that he used to go to uh, yeah, he liked old pubs that you could sort of mm. just go and sit in and, you know, mm. while away the day without anyone bothering you. So there is a certain kind of nostalgia for a certain type of existence which maybe doesn't exist anymore. But that didn't, you know, in crucially, that didn't mean he was commenting negatively on the entirety of contemporary society or saying to people, ah, you don't know what it was like. It was much better back in the day. So he was really engaged with the city he lived in and grew up in, and he was a part of it. 
and he was interested in it and he was interested in the people. Yeah, he was ringing the changes, wasn't he, without being part of the kind of heritage industry of the, the, the sort of yeah, in some way. That, that. You know, he would have hated any notion of being part of the heritage <laughs> industry. That London was, London was always better. Let's sort of fill out the picture a bit by going back in time because another one of your choices was not actually from uh, London San Sevier but is a track which Ian plays on, is part of, and this is The Apostles with Rediffusion Refugee. <laughs> So you said he was a born Londoner. You also mentioned that he was uh, political, I think an anarchist possibly. So let's let's fill out the past of Ian Wars because he had quite a colourful past. I mean, he did a lot of different stuff, quite often connected with music or sound in or live events yeah. and stuff. Well, I mean, a lot of this has been filled in for me after the fact. I mean, I knew I was friends with Ian for about ten last ten years, but it was only really since he got ill and then subsequently to him dying that I kind of really started to flesh out fully the, his kind of early the, his backstory. Yeah, that track that you played, the Apostles. Ian's contribution to that was the tape running in the background of the TV. You could hear a TV playing. <clears throat> So he contributed tapes to this group, The Apostles, who were a fairly un- not very well-known kind of London group who had links to kind of the anarcho-punk movement, um, the, obviously the, which was led by, in terms of music, groups like Crass and the Poison Girls and stuff. And Ian was a kind of absolute, was a really hardcore an- anarchist at that point. He ran a fanzine, he had a fanzine for a while called Pigs for Slaughter, you know, uh, which was like the fanzine for the militant anarcho-punk and he was you know he regarded people like crass and other anarcho-punks as kind of liberal pacifists (laughs) now his in his fanzine he published recipes on how to make molotov cocktails right okay so he was ultra militant you know Hmm. and all but he was also an activist you know so there was a place in Wapping called, I think it was called the Autonomy Centre, which was a, a, a DIY space, an early DIY space, mostly involved, you know, anarchist and political groups could use it for free. Uh, Ian was like an organiser there, key, one of the key holders at that centre. Um, so he was very involved in this as a, as a publisher, as an activist, mm. this kind of, you know, the London's kind of very underground anarcho-punk scene. And his links to the Apostles were, I think he lived in a squat with one of the members of the Apostles. So, um, And then later on, he ended up going, moving up to Scotland. He lived in Glasgow and Edinburgh, where he worked as like a music promoter. He was running the Barrowlands venue, which was the major yeah. music venue in, up in Glasgow. And he, was, he also ran a small venue of his own. Um, and he was putting on all kinds of bands like Jesus and Mary Chain, mm. Swans, My Bloody Valentine. So that kind of mid-80s alternative rock type stuff. Um, I think he also worked while he was up there. There was like a, lo- uh, a local kind of free free press, like an anarcho- anarcho-type printing um, setup, which would print pamphlets and such like for local political, radical political groups. He worked there, and I think he, you know he worked as a typesetter and so on. Hmm. 
So he developed quite a kind of strong visual graphic identity while he was up there, which I think you can definitely see in the London yeah, Sound totally, Survey yeah. website. Yeah. I just wasn't aware of the writing the recipe for the Molotov cocktail. I mean, that might give uh, the impression that he, this, he was a sort of... <laughs> A sort of fierce, frightening, kind of alarming person. He was the never, opposite. It's Obviously really the bizarre. Opposite. It was the complete opposite. It was very strange. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And there was a political dimension to his uh, work on the London Sound Survey. Um, mm. He didn't impose it upon the site. It kind of comes through by osmosis, mm. you know, how it's talking about how the city has changed, mm. the, the forces of capitalism that are kind of brought to bear on the city, how that has changed public space, private space, the different, you know, in the, the different communities that have built up or moved out of the city and so on. Um, well, just, certainly in the time I met him, I mean, he did various events with us and he was very generous with his time, you know. I think he was very, yeah, no, he was a very generous individual. You mm. know, he was, um, he became a very, he, I mean, he became an expert recordist, as you can tell if you listen to the stuff on the site, you know, self-taught. But then he also shared all these kind of, you know, inside tips on how to, get the best out of recording equipment and all this kind of stuff on the website there's lots of articles that he wrote or blogs or whatever um about how if you want to become a recordist then mm. you know i wanted to return to what you're saying about i mean the way that the sort of politics as it were sort of seeps through because he you know and, and what his preferences were because on the site too there's a there's various collection from the BBC archive which um, they'd encouraged him to put up there and I think he did some work on them and sort of cleaning them up, rescuing them as recordings, technical work and he put up there and there's, I remember when he did an event with us, this is the uh, recording that he chose to start with Now everybody always imagines that the flower girls of Piccadilly Circus have got a cry, that they say lovely violets but I don't think you do say that now, do you? Well only if we saw a person is passing and they look at the flowers, we just say violets, lovely violets to them but, of course, the cry is now dying out. Well, that's very sad to hear yes. it, but do you really say you say lovely violets regardless of the time of year? Oh, yes. I've got so used to saying it that I say it during the summer when there's no violets in season. <laughs> violets, lovely violets, roses and violets. That's a nice violets, dear. Violets, lovely violets, roses. That's a nice violets, dear. Violets, lovely violets, lovely roses. That's a nice violets, dear. Violets. Violet, have some nice roses there. Ah, nice violet, love. A violet sound at Circus in 1956. And, um... Sounds like a sound piece. You can imagine totally. someone taking that and, you know, looping it. Violet, lovely violet, violet, lovely violet, lovely violet, and then it becomes some kind of... It abstracts into some other kind of thing other than a street cry of a... You know, a, some street seller, some hawker on the street, you know. Yeah, totally. And, I mean, the reason I think he loved that was that for all the reasons you said, he said it's got something musical in it and rhythmic, you know, and and it's a bit of social documentary. And it was ringing the changes at the time. I think uh, she was the last violet seller yeah. at Piccadilly Circus. They got they got moved on by the police shortly afterwards. Let me just drop another one on you, uh, Tony, and just see you respond to this one. Well, Mr. Marshall, tell us all about selling muffins in the old days. Well, when I was thirteen years of age, I I went out of a Sunday and I used to sell out all right. They used to sell pretty fair in those days. But there must have been a lot of competition then, wasn't there? Oh, they was, but still none of them over there. I sold them. I suppose being young, I suppose they come after me for them. Uh-huh. I bet they were good muffins. Oh, they was, yes. Very good. Well, now tell me, in the old days your father used to sell muffins. Yes, yes. Now, didn't he... He travelled ha- the country. Did he? Yes. Same as I did. 
Tell me, didn't he have a call or a cry or something? Yes. You didn't just... Well, what was it? Very seldom he called it out. He called it out. In the old oak room, pitch my pains home. That's well, all he used to call it out. Could we have that again? What was it? Yeah. In the old oak room, pitch my pains home. That's what he used to all around. I thought your father also had a little rhyme, not only that he sang, but he spoke, didn't he? Yes. What was it? Uh, oh, uh... Now, ladies and gents, there's a nice little train. If you'll only buy off the Muffin Man in the street. But that's the Muffin Man. And the reason I play that, right, is, is that like the Violet Cellar, it was this little snapshot of a sort of passing time. I mean, muffins, I think, are like crumpets or some sort of bakery items and the guy would buy them from the bakery and then take them and sell them on the street you know that was a kind of whole economy that was dying out in uh in london and then it was followed by this i remember ian playing this one out are these people playing the muffin man over yes. there would you tell me how that game goes first of all there's a circle one person dances round like wooden steps right round till the end of the song's finished and then you go to go to a partner and then to the end like wooden steps you dance you sort of sit opposite your partner both yes. doing wooden soldier steps yes i see and then you go dance round like wooden steps right round to the end of that song's finished and you go on like that to the end of the song now does that mean that partners. when two people go round in the middle they stop opposite two people yes and sort of sit to do these two people yes and then what happens after that then you go on like that till the end of the song's finished. I see, and then the, the four people go round in pairs and they stop opposite four people yes. and dance to them. Yes. Now, should we go over and watch them at it? Yes. What do you reckon of that? Yeah, well, I recognise that song, you know. I'm old enough to recognise, to come in on the tail end of a lot of these things as they were kind of passing into history, you know. Um, whether it's... Uh, I think one thing Ian was interested in was kind of street life and how that had changed, you know. And all these things you're playing there, these kind of streets, the, the Violet Cellar, the Muffin Man, the kids playing games in the street. I think a lot of that, these, you know, it's basically very active, it's communal, it's community-based... Um, uh, it's a lot of interaction between different types of individuals on the street so I think he was kind of if there was, if there's any mournful or forlorn aspect to the London Soundsaver I think it's lamenting the passing of street life you know he liked markets and all that mm. as you said when you read out the first uh, that kind of some, some, what, he, what, he, what were the things he said about maybe why he started the site part of it he wanted to just document this history of stuff on the street you know? yeah um, and also you can't get away from the class aspect which is made quite stark there because you have the bbc presenters with the received pronunciation and then you have you know the kind of the people they're speaking to sound like they sound like londoners you know um so there is a class aspect to this where working class communities are were or were there's the streets around working class communities were very active full of people people were outside doing all kinds of things playing uh working and so on whereas in other communities of london like i don't think ian necessarily recorded around places like saint john wood or mm. saint john's wood you know 
because there's nothing to record there because there's no one on the street. Um, and as you said, you can dig in. I mean, because he was because of his graphics, it, it is a very lovely looking site and there's different ways yeah. to explore it you can explore it by theme so you can look, at the, look through those kind of archive recordings yeah. or you can click on the map and find out recordings that were say recorded in Camden you know there's a whole sequence of them um, I'm going to play another one of uh, of yours Tony. I'm just going to play a bit of it and then we can talk about it was from the Thames LP and it was the Tower Bridge North Bascule Chamber, uh, one of uh, Tony's choices. Why Tony? And um, tell us about what is the Bascule Chamber? Well I've actually been down there, it's amazing. It's literally, it's, it is a, literally a, this huge underground concrete cavern underneath Tower Bridge and if you think about when Tower Bridge raises up, each side of the bridge raises up to counter the weight of the bridge as they raise up there are these massive huge i mean absolutely vast steel counterweights under the bridge and obviously as they as the bridge raises up the counterweights need somewhere to go so they basically slide into this massive underground cavern and what you heard was the sound of tower bridge being raised from inside the cavern mm. so it's actually a terrifying space it's almost like something out of um uh, the pit and the pendulum you can imagine an, an edgar Allan poe type horror story being mm. set down there as people are just you know laid out as the massive weight comes around to crush them you know <laughs> or maybe just that's my imagination um so it was very so it's you know it's a it's a it's another it's another example of what ian was about i think is finding a space and recording a sound that otherwise would be you know, wouldn't, wouldn't be heard by people but is very integrated into the workings of a very visual aspect of the city which namely the raising of tower bridge you know um so it's a different aspect of that thing that the raising of tower bridge um but it's interesting as you were playing it you know even though i know it i'm thinking it sounded to me like a contemporary a work of contemporary orchestral music maybe totally. a kind of post john cage type thing that you would see at you could hear at cafe oto or 
the Barbican or something like that. It had a very musical aspect to it. Um, this would not sound out of place if it was played as some live piece of sound art or a bit of improvisation with it and I mean it's quite beautiful certainly at the beginning it gets much more threatening and picks up on some of the um, atmosphere you talk about later on so he was in some way sort of archaeologist of sound as well wasn't he because these were secret maybe not secret spaces but rather inaccessible spaces that yeah absolutely yeah yeah so there's that aspect to it as well you know kind of making audible or make amplifying sounds that you would otherwise have not heard you know uh, i mean other field recordists go into that in a much more detailed way someone like chris watson who's probably the most famous field recordist you know david attenborough's recordist you know who figures out how do i record uh, inside a termite hill a mound or whatever you know um but so Ian wasn't kind of that he wasn't that kind of microscopic recordist he was much more of a kind of ambient um environmental recordist if you like but in the round you know when I first met him around about 2012 he'd started to become involved in with a number of musicians in London's kind of experimental music community I'd you know interest in field recordings and sound art had become had become quite um had increased quite a lot a lot of colleges and institutions were offering courses in sound art or listening studies a lot of people started talking about listening as part of a almost pre or parallel mindfulness type notion you know listening is a rather than kind of projecting onto people you basically listen um, well active listening is it active were. listening mm. but also listening as in improving your you know communication and so on um uh so yeah so basically sound art uh, and field recording partly because uh, the equipment to make field recording possible it improved, you know, it was much more discreet. You didn't have to walk around with massive boom microphones and such like. Uh, that recording you just played was put out on an LP on a label called Persistence of Sound, which was run by a composer called Ian Chambers. But Ian Chambers himself kind of started incorporating Ian's, some of Ian's mm. recordings into his own compositions. And Ian started to forge relationships with uh, musicians or organizations that were putting on music so he started doing talks the first time i met him was at a talk that i put on at cafe Oto, for instance uh, we were talking about sound maps which was which were quite a kind of unknown esoteric thing back then maybe they still are actually but i didn't know him very well but he struck me as somebody who was a kind of very benevolent loner and it's interesting that you said that you found out a lot more about his backstory, his past, after he died. He was a loner, but in a, in a very sort of engaged way. That's what he, that's how he seemed to me. What was he like as your landlord? He was hilarious, you know. So he wasn't a commercial landlord, let's say that. So basically he had this flat in New Cross. He got made redundant by the National Sound Archive. So he put the money into doing his flat up in New Cross. And then he was going to rent it out to a mate of his. Uh, and then I appeared. I heard I needed to move out of the flat that I'd been living in for 12 years with my daughter. So I was looking for a place for me and my daughter to live. Uh, I heard from someone that Ian had a flat, so I got got in touch with him anyway. Whatever. Um, and one thing led to another, and we eventually, after a couple of months, we moved in. Me and my daughter moved in there, and um, it was a really nice, really nice, big 
uh, one bedroom, which I turned into a two bedroom flat. He was going to let it out to me for 900 a month when he could have got 1600. And then I, the day I moved in, he says, Oh, yeah, Tony. Well, Tony, I just thought I'm going to knock 50 pounds off the rent, right? So we're going to charge you 850. And the reason that for that is, Tony, I will show you. And he took me into the hall and he showed me a patch of, he'd done some plastering. And it was a bit rough, you know, it was all right. You wouldn't notice it. And he goes, I was looking at this plastic, Tony, and I'm thinking, it's a bit rustic, a bit <laughs> rustic. So consider that a rustic plaster di- discount, 50 quid. He was just looking for a way to knock something off the rent. That yeah, was all, so, wasn't it? I mean, he was, yeah, so, you know, and he said, uh, well, I hope you'll stay here a long time, Tony. I hope you'll be very happy. And I think for that reason let's agree that we'll leave the rent as it is for the next five years and then we'll have another chat about it amazing so that's what he did so yeah i lived there for five years and um i did move out before he died actually and one of my colleagues at the wire moved in (laughs) so you know he's uh yeah he's provided a roof uh, for at least two separate workers at the wire to live (laughs) under You know, so we was his contribution to the wire as well as partly his contribution to the wire. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So Mm. one way or another, I'm in his debt. You know. Yeah. I mean, I miss him greatly. You know. I mean, obviously, other people were closer to him than I was, but he had. He was one of these people who just seemed to have acquired huge amounts of knowledge purely out of interest in things and stuff and people and. You know, very often you'd have a conversation with Ian and, you know, so you'd mention something and he'd start off, you know, well, Tony, that's very interesting <laughs> you should say that because, you know. That's, and then he'd that's dro- what he sounded like. Yeah, yeah, then he'd drop some kind of science on mm. you or whatever, which was really fascinating, you know. And so he wasn't talking about himself. He, would, he could talk for high, you know, forever about multiple subjects but not know. about himself but not about it. himself so he was very self-effacing in that way mm. you know because of because of working for the wire a lot of the bands or groups or music that the wire writes about was the kind of stuff that ian had been promoting back in the day so obviously we'd talk a bit about music in that sense but and so i knew he'd worked up in glasgow and edinburgh as a promoter and that uh, but i didn't know about the links to the anarcho movement down here i didn't know that he was i didn't know anything about his early days growing up in london um for hours and hours and hours but he was one of these few people who actually very rarely spoke about himself mm. or his own experiences other than so know. he died last year and um i don't know whether this was connected but um in 2020 he also sort of put a cap as it were on the london sound survey and, and all all the recordings the still the site is still up but also all his recordings are collected at the london metropolitan archive as well as a sort of uh, but he he did carry on doing stuff and the next thing we're going to hear in a minute actually is from a project that he was working on called the listening trail but why, do you know why he ended it, uh, Tony, and what happened next between that and, him, and his death? Partly because he moved out of London. Now, his partner lived in Cambridge, and I think that was mainly probably the main reason, just mm. that he wasn't here doing mm. the recordings and stuff. You know, the project that you referenced that we're going to hear a recording of, yeah, the listening trail, that was basically his what he started doing instead or afterwards, which was basically a series of sound walks around... Cambridge and the surrounding areas, you know, the Fens and that, a very, very different environment to London, obviously, you know. This is mostly rural areas that he's kind of going into and recording and um, talking about as he's walking through these spaces and making the recordings as well. Um, And so he's left all this stuff behind. This is the things that he was working on uh, just shortly before he died, you know. I think the recording we're going to hear, but he made it in July, you know, and he was dead by September so and also we can hear his voice in this for the 
walking along Euston Road heading south it's fairly busy with traffic cars light vans as I walk south to my left or to the east is a place called the Shadwell Estate one of the roads is marked private and it's given over to pig farms an enormous expanse of pig farms the pigs are rooting around in the churned up ground outdoors and they have what look like Nissan huts to sleep in it looks a bit really almost very far perhaps half a mile or a mile it extends like a prisoner of war camp the prisoners kept in a degraded and naked condition but otherwise seemingly oblivious to their fate to my right to the west is the grounds of the nunnery stud that's N-U-N-N-E-R-Y stud farm with a huge impressive gateway built in 1988 there he is <laughs> yeah there he is so I mean you know just that you obviously just from that very very brief um, example you've got someone who is incredibly alert to his environment has a has an ability to describe it in a way that is very evocative and pictorial but also is obviously very interested in why this space is here he notices a gate and he immediately notices that it's built in 88 and so mm. on so that says a lot about him and that project is going to come i think with his friends and i think with the wire yeah, the, the idea is to do something at some point obviously it's a huge amount of work for somebody to kind of actually index and put all this stuff mm. together um i'm not really giving anything away you know he he was diagnosed with a very advanced brain tumor and this was very and it, he went downhill very quickly so you know it, from being diagnosed to actually dying it was only a few matter of weeks so there was very little time and he was like anyone you know brain tumors are terrible things because they render people physically mm. you know they just shut they just slowly shut everything down so you can't speak or anything like this you're still cognizant mentally but you can't communicate which was incredibly frustrating um but he was still trying to show everyone, you know, he had his computer there and he was sort of trying to show people where the files were and what mm. they were. And he was trying to communicate about all this kind of stuff. Hopefully, hopefully the wire will be able to host. And I think the CERN survey website is going to be is going to continue as well, you know. Great. And for listeners, I will put a link to Tony's obituary of Ian in the show notes. You can check out the London Sound Survey site at www.soundsurvey.org.uk You will find many of the sounds that we played out here in their full form along with the sonic treasure trove that Ian collected over 10 years. We didn't get chance to mention Ian's book Honk, Conk and Squack It Fabulous and Forgotten Sound Words from a Vanished Age of Listening Are you the ordile sort, I think ordile means audio lover, who can tell the difference between a bottle bump and a gabble ratchet? Does your dog oof, baff, chana, snook or wink? Have you been kept awake by a box of toys from a rendezvous, a schlemmozzle, a callet hump or even a bobbity pack? Or has a dose of the old gin and fog made you all reesty cropped and gurag like a hinch in arfa? The answers are in the pages of Ian's book, Honk, Conk and Squack It, a unique collection of over 1,500 forgotten and obscure sound words from drawn from old sources across the English-speaking world. It's terrific. Tony, we're getting towards the end, and we're going to finish uh, in a minute with your final uh, choice. And this was a piece 
that was played at his funeral, right? And um, I think as listeners will hear, there is something very haunting about it. And uh, that must have been quite a moment, I imagine, when this was played. So tell us what it is and uh, and something about it. The Corriton Oil Refinery Siren at Canvey Island. Yeah, well, it's a really, it is a, it's one of the great field recordings for me, regardless of the circumstance. Um, but again, yeah, Canby Island, you know, um, obviously off the coast of, you know, near South End, uh, historically a bit, an, an area of oil refineries and so on. Um, I think Ian heard that the refinery was being shut down. And so uh, this recording is all that's left of it now. It doesn't, this siren, this sound does not exist anymore. Uh, I've never heard anything quite like it. It was played as at his funeral. Of course, in that context, you know, it was particularly poignant mm. to hear it. We're going to play out on that. But before we do, I just wanted to read you some of Ian's final words from the London Sound Survey website. And he says, uh, Pleasure and curiosity have been the most reliable motivators, more so than a desire to document a city which just sounds pompous. It was also my way of capturing fragments of everyday experience so they could be reproduced in the mind of others. Copies of the site's recordings have been lodged with the London Metropolitan Archives for long-term safekeeping. And so it may be that someone decades hence will come across them. To that future listener, greetings. That was Ian Moores, and uh, that was Tony Harrington. Thanks very much for coming to the Bureau of Lost Culture to talk about Ian and London Sound Survey, Tony. It was my pleasure. Hopefully I've, I've done right by Ian. I think so. Thanks very much, Tony. Thank you to the BBC Archive for their recordings and to Steve Feld for his recording of Bells and Landscapes. And thank you for listening and spending time with the Bureau of Lost Culture. You can check out all that we do at thebureauoflostculture.com. See you, hear you next time. This one's for Ian Rawls, RIP, the Canvey Island Oil Refinery. (laughs) 